Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for music that really blows. Today, we're going to start off with some trivia. Our first trivia round tonight is going to be the audio round. And I have seven clips of music to play. And what I would like for you to do is to tell me the name of the artist, the name of the song, and the theme that ties them all together. Okay. Simple enough. It is. Here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. The big city went straight to my baby's head. She never listened to a word I was. Track four. Track five. So how do you feel about that one? Not so good, Joe. I don't feel very good about it. But I got two. I've got two I'm fairly confident on, but... What about the theme? Based on the two, I have a guess on the theme, but we'll see. And we're going to play those clips again at the end of the show? We're going to play those clips again at the end of this show. Yes. <laughs> so natural, so smooth. It's like we haven't missed a beat. <laughs> oh, man. For today, I have the non-audio round, and I've got a title for this trivia. It's called Haggling with Haggis. So as we were researching uh, for this episode about bagpipes, I noticed there is a lot of bands that have the word haggis in the name of the band. Really? Oh, yes. (laughs) 
So I pulled, I pulled a bunch of them, and then I made up a bunch of fake ones. So your job is to t- simply tell me, is this a real band name or a fake band name? Okay, that sounds good. You ready? Yeah, it sounds easier than eating haggis. Yes, significantly easier than eating haggis. All right. Bad haggis. That's real. That is a real band. Very good. Band haggis. That's fake. That is fake. Though haggis was truly banned there for a while. All right. Black market haggis. I'm going to say fake. No, that's real. There's a band called Black Market Haggis. I was actually going to say real, and then I heard you snicker. (laughs) Well, snicker. The real ones and the fake ones, because they're both stupid. Your tell works both ways. I know. (laughs) know. Canned Haggis. Real. That is real. Very good. Connery's Low Hanging Haggis. Fake. That is fake. Enter the Haggis. Fake. That's real. That is the uh, number one haggis band, according to Google. If you look up haggis bands, enter the haggis. (laughs) (laughs) If you do what now? (laughs) If you Google haggis bands, enter the haggis is like the top uh, find. For a while, they changed their name to Exit the Haggis. (laughs) Better than the haggis exiting you. (laughs) I don't know which one's worse, entering or exiting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hunted haggis. Fake. That is fake. Haggis propolagus. What is that second word? Propolagus. I'll say fake. (laughs) That is is fake. I made that up. Okay. Okay. The haggis candy band. Fake. That's real. Okay. Piping hot haggis. <laughs> I'll say fake. Yeah, that's that is fake. Yeah, I made that one up. Haggis horns. Fake. That's real. Oh man. Hag haggis rampant. Fake. That's real. Jeez. Human <laughs> human haggis. <laughs> keep wanting to say real to all these, but I'm going to say fake again. <laughs> That's real. There's an actual band called Human Haggis. Human Haggis. <laughs> what are they? Do you know anything about them? No, I didn't look up any of these bands more than their name. <laughs> you don't want to get on anybody's list for weird Google searches. We've got some suspect Haggis searches coming from the... <laughs> <laughs> the FBI is circling my house right now. All right. Maddest haggis. Real. That's fake. Ah, got me. All right. And the Ophel haggis band. Real. Nope, that's fake. Boy, you sure are not very good with your haggis bands. You got more? No. Wait, that was it? I spent a good hour today looking up haggis bands. I could only find eight. (laughs) I mean, I thought that was a lot. I mean, that's seven more than I figured there would have been. It was fun. I like researching haggis. I watched videos of people eating haggis for the first time. Strange way to spend your Sunday morning, but you know. Have you ever had haggis? No. No, I have not. Have you? 
Not that I remember. I guess I would. I would probably eat it. Well, that was a admirable effort on the old haggis quiz. So now we're going to uh, caber toss it back to the turntable talk, huh? Caber tossing makes me think of tennis, like Andre Hagassi. <laughs> Sorry, it just came to me. I, thought it was really cool. <laughs> I don't believe that just came to you. I think you've been saving that one. Somewhere there was a, a 13, 13 year old Joe writing in one of his <laughs> notebooks, Andre Hagassi. It's going to be appropriate at some point. Yeah, maybe. It's like I got to hold on to that one. I've only got one chance to make that work. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Slightly before they were to form the most influential underground band of all time, Lou Reed and John Cale paid a visit to Syracuse University to hang out with a young Sterling Morrison. Reed dragged his sullen-looking Welsh roommate up to his old stomping grounds to get out of their shithole lower, lower east side apartment for a weekend, take in some of the sights, sounds, and substances that a 1964 campus could offer, and to recruit Morrison to join the Primitives, the manufactured Pickwick Records band that had recently released the viola-drenched novelty dance song satire, The Ostrich. Kale prided himself on his downtown experimental tendencies and was unsure about taking in a college student into a rock and roll band, but Lou assured him that Sterling was on the level. The dormitory was sweltering as the three downed cheap beers and talked about their favorite doo-wop and jazz musicians. Suddenly through an open window there was a faint sound of marching boots and the hut one, hut two, chanted Cadence. Reed looked out the window and smirked at the Syracuse's ROTC marching down the walkway by the dorm. He scoffed at the syncopated rows of G.I. Joe-haired Vietnam fodder and nudged his head at Kale, as if to say, Get a load of these assholes. Kale had an idea. In the room, there just happened to be a set of dilapidated bagpipes lying about, left there by some random art school weirdo friend of Sterling's. Kale grabbed the unwieldy instrument and moved over to the window where Reed was sitting. He leaned out the window and waited for the parading corps to get right below the dorm window. The ungodly loud blast resonated from above, startling the young army cadets. They ducked and broke rank. One of the cadets fell to the ground, his pants split slightly, which caused little rhythmic arcs of urine to pulsate gently in the morning sun. A few coeds nearby snickered at the bumbling soldiers. Kale continued to produce excremental sounds as the irritated, sullen, and embarrassed marchers looked up, regrouped, and continued on toward death and glory. Sterling looked sheepish. Reed smugly sipped at his bottle. Kale stomped triumphantly around the dorm room before finally releasing the pipes from his lips to let out a rare yet grand guffaw. Shortly after, Sterling would leave school and move into the same building as Kale, Reed, and time-impaired drummer Angus McLeese to form the earliest incarnation of the Velvet Underground, a band that, like the surprise bagpipe attack, was no stranger to aggressive droning and attacking both conservative values and gender-specific dress codes.
Bagpipes have long been confounding and terrifying soldiers. In fact, for centuries, they had been considered a weapon of war. Unlike bugles or drums, which simply use sounds to instruct or rally your own troops, the bagpipes' deafening roars were used to intimidate the opposition, confuse them, and remind them of their oncoming demise. It is the sound of war, death, and funerals, mortifying and morbid. James Reed was the bagpiper for the armies of the failed Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. After he was taken prisoner, Reed claimed that he should avoid execution as he carried no weapon in the battle. The British Empire officials, fearing the stirring effects it had on Scottish insurgents and petrifying effects it had on its own soldiers, disagreed with Reed's assessment of the sweet innocence of the bagpipe and outlawed the instrument on the battlefield. Reed was hanged, then drawn and quartered, which is very similar to how bagpipes are made. Around the start of the Great War in 1914, the English and Canadian forces had realized the ungodly powers of the bagpipe and created regiments of pipers to play inspiring tunes and blood-curdling battle songs in the trenches all over Europe. Often they would sound out rallying points for lost fighting men in the mustard gas fog in the dark of night. They were nicknamed by the Germans as Die Damen aus der Ulle, the ladies from hell for their distinctive tartan kilts and devil-may-care ferocity. The pipers would walk along the front lines and lead divisions over the top of trenches armed with nothing but their trusty instrument as they were gunned down at a horrifying rate. It's like the world's easiest carnival game. Of the 2,500 war pipers in the First Great War, it is said that over a 1,000 were killed in action. And probably about 40 of those bagpipes are still droning even to this day. Because of the almost assured death sentence of being a battlefield piper, the English army had determined that bagpipers needed to remain at camps and stopped all bagpipers from playing in the field during World War II. There was one lone exception. Scottish private William Millen stormed the beach at Normandy on D-Day. Millen was the personal piper for commander of 1st Special Service Brigade, Lord Lovett. Lovett said he would be damned to break traditions and told Millen that the bagpiper ban was an English regulation, and that they were Scottish, so it didn't apply to them. When the light infantry hit Sword Beach and the doors of the boat crashed into the sand, the sound of the Highland laddie could be heard amongst the artillery and gunfire. Millen heroically played as his comrades dropped all around him. He later claims that the captured German sniper told him that they simply just couldn't bring themselves to shoot him because he looked like a madman on that beach, slowly marching through the surf with an enormous bleeding sack mechanism with protruding appendages practically acting as a target. Like he'd risen from the water with a tartan squid atop his shoulders. Yet the Germans showed no mercy to anyone beside Millen. Still, he tried to comfort the fallen boys writhing in pain, though they probably would have preferred a medic. Millen saw more action, but survived the war. The feat made even more amazing when he revealed that he followed Scottish tradition and refused to wear underwear under his kilt. His sack mechanisms succeeded unimpeded. 
Bagpipes are a sonorous and ceaseless instrument, almost comically so. The traditional Scottish bagpipe is the loudest unamplified instrument known to man. Sorry, Yoko. Decibel levels range upwards of 110, which puts them far closer to thunderclaps and power tools than pianos and oboes. And if the deafening sound doesn't get you, then the constancy of its noise certainly will. The chanter of a bagpipe is open, which means that once a piper has used the blow stick to fill the bag, the instrument cannot and will not be silenced until all the air is released. The spectacular, implacable, multi-dimensional soundscapes made by a stand of pipes are typically more unleashed than controlled. In fact, it requires technical playing to create an illusion of articulation and tone accents. In essence, the player bends to the will of the instrument, not the other way around. It's an anti-theremin. As James Reed, Bill Millen, and John Cale can all attest, the bagpipe is a fierceful musical weapon. The power seems to be a tempting inclusion to engorge the depths of songcraft, yet there have been so few popular musical artists who have attempted to integrate bagpipes into their songs. Even fewer who used bagpipes on a regular basis. On today's episode, we are going to explore the tenuous relationship between the sack and the song. To find the brave souls who marched into the mainstream with nothing but pipes, pride, provocations, and piercing pandemonium, we are going to lift the kilt on one of the world's most maligned and misunderstood music makers. We're going up kilt. So, Take a deep breath and blow as hard as you can, squeeze your bag tightly, finger your chanter nimbly, and don't stop until you or your audience passes out. Because we're starting to tartan. Today, bagpipes in popular music. Versions of what we would recognize as bagpipes date back to the 1st century B.C. in Egypt, and precursors as far as back as 4000 B.C. Traditionally, they were made from whole animal skins, which were turned inside out, with the pipes being stuffed into the leg and neck holes. Those pipes, which were called tibia, were just hollowed out leg bones. Thankfully, no part of the animal was wasted. The Scots even turned the animal runoff into a culinary bounty that is haggis, the bagpipes of food. It was the Romans who brought the bagpipes to Scotland over 2,000 years ago. The Romans used bagpipes as alarm clocks to announce to slaves that the workday had begun. And Nero, the haggis of Roman leaders, was playing the bagpipes, not the fiddle, as he watched Rome burn. On the way to bringing pipes to Scotland, the Romans spread them throughout Europe, Africa, and Asia, like they were hot piping STDs. Versions of the bagpipe include Bulgaria's Gieta, Italy's Ampugna, Russia's Volenka, Germany's Bach, North Africa's Zucra, India's Mushug, France's Cornemuse, and Canada's Getty Lee. The Scottish Great Highland Bagpipes is what we most identify as the archetypal bagpipe with a bag, a blowpipe, 
a chanter to play the melody, and three drone pipes, two tenor and one bass. Once the bagpipe made it to Scotland, no one is quite sure how it became such the treasured national instrument that it is today. It certainly had appeal to both low and highborns. Traveling minstrels would perform at feasts and fairs, while pipes were used as an honorific device in the clan system to demonstrate power and importance. It was in 1549 at the Battle of Pinky Klug when the bagpipes cemented their place as a Scottish weapon of crass destruction. The bagpipes' booming moans replaced puny trumpet calls as they could be heard up to 10 miles away to rally troops even over the usual battle roar. Since then, bagpipes were the most beloved musical device of the Scots and irrevocably linked with their abnormal sense of decorum, only rivaled by their peat-infested liquor, their eye-piercing fabric choices, and a log that was once mistaken for a dinosaur. The bagpipes are perhaps the least emotional instrument in the world. That is, unless you're the sort that gets amped up listening to the dial-up modem tone. Pipes are typically reserved for the most formal of occasions, like weddings, funerals, coronations, battles, and Toyotathons, making it a fairly hard sell in the realm of popular music. Very few babies have been made to a three-piper rendition of Amazing Grace, and the ones that were conceived, well, they didn't turn out so great. Looking at you, Dahmer. Classical musicians scoffed at the notion of including the dull, quavering folk instruments in their works of great art, though Mozart's dad, Leopold, did have a song called Peasant's Wedding that included a part for the pipes and the hurdy-gurdy. Basically, the 18th century's chicken dance. Modern classical composers like Sir Peter Maxwell Davies, Sean Davy, and the satirical PDQ Bach have shoehorned in the bagpipes, but for the most part, bagpipes are left alone on their island of dissonance. So, with the high grounds and lowlands of music cut off, it would take an exceptionally brave man to tear down the strongly fortified gates of sensibility to allow the waves of deafening drones to breach popular music. It's time to talk about the elephant in the room. Or is that what we've been doing the whole time? The most prominent bagpipist in popular music through the 20th century, and that's saying quite a bit, is easily Rufus Harley. Harley started playing jazz at a fairly early age while growing up in Philadelphia, where he spent most of his life. He played tenor sax and was a pretty solid player, But being a pretty solid tenor sax player in the late 50s and early 60s wasn't nearly good enough. Harley saw and heard sax players like Dexter Gordon, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, Sonny Stitt, and I'm sure plenty of others. Needless to say, the sure talent of this group of musicians made Harley's playing sound lackluster. He started looking for a new instrument to play in the early 60s, but nothing was really calling to him. It's as if he needed a very specific noise to reach him. Near the end of 1963, Harley, like most Americans, watched the funeral of John Kennedy on TV. The thing that struck Harley in the head during that procession was the playing of the Black Watch Bagpipe Band. The Black Watch had been on tour in the U.S. and had played the White House only a few days before the Kennedy assassination. The two events are unrelated. Probably. For the funeral, Jackie Kennedy asked the Black Watch back to play. From the White House to the Cathedral of St. Matthew the Apostle, nine members of the Black Watch performed four songs. The Black Watch had been one of the infantry troops mentioned earlier, 
Formed in 1881, they served and fought in dozens of battles around the world. They were also soldiers, and not just bagpipers, though. You might call them natural-born kilters. Harley was entranced and started telling his friends all about his dream of using the bagpipes to play jazz music. A friend spotted some bagpipes in the window of a pawn shop and told Rufus all about it. They were $120. Harley ran to the pawn shop and scooped up the pipes, spending his mortgage money on them. In a later interview, Harley recalled, The pawnbroker thought it was crazy. In fact, every musician in Philadelphia thought it was crazy. Over the next six months, Harley practiced and found a way to modify the sound of the bagpipe so that it could fit within a jazz backdrop. Writer Daniel Goldmark explained in his essay, Slightly Left of Center, that Harley tuned his drones, the pipes that produce harmonizing notes, to F and B flat, a switch from the instrument's more common tuning, so that he'd be able to play with other jazz musicians. The bagpipe's chanter also presented a problem. This pipe, played with two hands, provides the melody, but it only plays nine notes. A saxophone, played by any of the giants at that time, played 30 notes, and a trumpet, 40. Harley wanted to accomplish that same effect with just the nine. Once he felt like he'd been able to accomplish that, he made attempts to get gigs. He was 27, no one had heard of him, and he would walk from club to club, selling himself as a jazz bagpiper. People thought it was all a gimmick. Club owners told him to aerophone home. It was in 1965 that Joel Dorn, an Atlantic A&R guy, heard Harley and thought he'd be worth bringing into Atlantic for an album. Dorn had been a Philly DJ, but was hired on by Atlantic in 1964 when he signed Hubert Laws, a jazz flutist. Dorn produced the first record by Laws and thought Harley would make a great follow-up. I guess he had a type. Dorn continued to have an amazing career producing albums by Roland Kirk, Youssef Latif, Gary Burton, Max Roach, and most famously, Roberta Flack. Dorn recalled in a 2008 interview when asked about the first Rufus Harley album, the bagpipe record took off. Now, when I say took off, I mean it sold five, 6,000 copies, but for a jazz album by an unknown artist, who one who played bagpipes, that was a big deal. Introducing the bagpipes as a jazz instrument at the time wasn't such a crazy idea. It was around the same time that jazz albums were being produced by harpist Dorothy Ashby, and saxophonist Youssef Latif, who was experimenting with Asian and Middle Eastern influences. Harley released four albums on Atlantic between 1965 and 1970. His first was called Bagpipe Blues, and it featured a mix of traditional Scottish songs, spirituals, show tunes, and originals. three tracks have bagpipes on them, which made some people think that Dorn, who produced the album, thought Harley was just a novelty act. On other tracks, Harley plays flute, soprano, and tenor sax. 
Harley's next album, Scotch and Soul, also from 1965, only had three tracks out of seven with bagpipes. Three years later, a much more confident and stronger-sounding Harley released A Tribute to Courage. This album featured more bagpipe playing and a strong social conscience that took hold of Harley for the rest of his life. It was Harley's final album on Atlantic in 1970 called King Queens that proved to people that he could really play jazz with the bagpipes. This is the best album of his career, and it features the best lineup he ever worked with, too. Montego Joe played congas, which add a Latin feel to the sound. Along with him, guitarist Eric Gale, pianist Richard T., electric bassist Chuck Rainey, and drummer Jimmy Johnson round out the band. Those players have combined for more than 2,000 albums in their careers. Jimmy Johnson even played with fellow Philadelphian Sun Ra. For this album, the bagpipes are the lead instrument on six of the seven tracks. It's a great album from start to finish. about that album a little later. The next album Harley released is a great soul jazz album featuring the Hammond B3 organ, the best of all the organs, which is played by Bill Mason, who's the same guy who lights it up on Rusty Bryant's Fire Eater album as well. The album called Recreation of the Gods was released on Onk Records. Here's the track Malika, which has captured the ear of quite a few DJs over the years. Man, that song is so good. It really is, and it seems like it's a lot different than 
the King Queens album, just because there was a lot of almost psych, soul, jazz, and Latin on that King Queens album, and then this one was just soul jazz almost exclusively. It's really mm-hmm. good. Considerably more funky, too, with that Hammond and its bagpipe funk soul jazz. I mean, there's nothing like it. After that album, there wasn't another release under Harley's name until 1988. He spent the rest of the 70s playing live, sometimes touring with Sonny Rollins, and even appearing on his 1974 album, Cutting Edge. And in 1982, he played on Laurie Anderson's song, Sweaters, from her album, Big Science. I no longer love your mouth. I no longer love your eyes. In 1994, he bleated on the title track of the Roots album, Do You Want More? Well, I'm a fly Philly nigga. Finger on the trigger, MCs repent from sins, golf. Coming again, original. What visionary individual, original. What visionary individual, I proceed. As I give you what you need, like I'm a medical doctor. Watch the damage I inflict properly. Ain't nobody rising on top of me. I be dropping while plotting my mic, Monopoly. We tried to find more connections between Rufus Harley and Sun Ra. They were both based in the same neighborhood of Germantown, Philadelphia at the same time and played at least one festival together. In 1987, a DVD was released that had been taped during the Washington, D.C. Cap City Jazz Festival. The first half of the DVD is the Sun Ra Orchestra, and the second is Rufus Harley's band. But we weren't able to find any more about any interaction between the two absolutely brilliant wackadoodles. It seems like a missed opportunity to attain my lifelong dream of hearing what space bagpipes sound like. There were a few other jazz forays into bagpipes. Albert Eiler hoisted his sack and ripped some insanity on his 1969 album, Music is the Healing Force of the Universe. Despite the album title, it would be hard to say the sound was any sort of healing force. Post-pill jaw wobble would often use French bagpiper virtuoso Jean-Pierre Roslet on his awkward world music explorations. Estonian musician Katarine Raska, more known for her Jews harp playing, also released some strange experimental Estonian bagpipe recordings. Not a sentence you hear very often. Did you read or see anything about what other jazz musicians thought of Rufus Harley? I think people really thought it was great. Experimentation was really a big deal back then, and this was this was something that was respected. He could really play. No, oh, yeah, no doubt. It's just hard to imagine, like, <laughs> breaking down the walls that he had to break down to kind of make that work. Like we mentioned, there were other people, Dorothy Ashby, Yusef Latif, I guess Alice Coltrane was probably around that same time, too. It was a really fertile time for experimenting with sounds from around the world and bringing them into jazz, which was was already kind of 
pigeonholing itself as just an American sound. And so it was hmm. very much accepted, I think, from series jazz players to, to bring this in. And, and I think people really respected him. Well, the atonal adventures of jazz music provide some potential safe haven for bagpipes, rock music is a different story entirely. Despite both priding themselves on being loud, explosive, and fearless, bagpipes and rock and roll prove to be strange bedfellows that rarely find common ground to cooperate. The traditional and somewhat stuffy drones of the pipes were very rarely worked into the freewheeling cacophony. However, musicians are nothing if not daring, ensuring a fascinating amount of bagpipe rock specimens. Sometimes the ceremonial tones added the necessary somber air to provide a hint of protest, nostalgia, or grief. Sometimes they used the bagpipes' natural absurdity and irksomeness to have a go at the audience. Sometimes they are thrown in as a shorthand to let the listener know that the songwriter was some sort of mystic, and their work is a travelogue of some ancient green, lush, and exotic world across the sea. Looking at you, Sting. Sometimes they had a bellowing for the sake of bellowing. When integrated best, it was just wonderful madness. Solemn, silly, sensational, or sensual, they are almost never subtle. The earliest rock song that we could dig up is probably one of our favorites. In 1965, swinging singing siblings Nino Tempo and April Stevens covered I Love How You Love Me with a wall of sound that was ripped out of Edinburgh Castle with a mighty looping pipe riff that would make Phil Spector's hair retract. We'll post the track of the YouTube clip of a live performance of from the show Shivery, where Nino performs a spectacular bagpipe humpty dance whilst carrying it like a cadaver over his shoulder. In 1967, as psychedelics were starting to invade popular music, the Illinois garage outfit The Cryin' Shames experimented with dosing a blowpipe with some LSD, and the resulting fuzzed-out track was called The Sailing Ship. The song was later adapted by Manson collaborator and stable genius Anton Newcomb as the Brian Jonestown Massacre song, Sailor, which didn't feature bagpipes at all, but did still utilize LSD on a blow stick. And who knows, Newcomb might have even been coyoteing his own sack of heroin up his bum at the time.
Similarly, the twee psych outfit West Coast Pop Art Experiment threw some random bagpipes on their banjo-ified ode to a hippie chick, Delicate Fawn. It doesn't make much sense, nor does it sound that good, but that was basically the band's M.O., You are tomorrow's temptation Play sweet and gentle and thin Stay away from all dirty old men However, it is the experimental band Cro-Magnon with their song Caledonia that had far and away the trippiest and most spine-chilling use of psych pipes. The song comes off the 1969 record Orgasm, which was cut by two New York City commercial songwriters who decided to indulge their deepest impulses. Caledonia is basically the inception of folk metal, and you can even make the argument that it is the root of several genres, noise rock, industrial music, emo, death polka, and Celtic dark wave. It's sort of the brown of music genres. The sound of all styles of music played simultaneously. A masterpiece? In the grand tradition of just throwing in someone else's recorded piping to add some weight to a song, can be traced back to the 1968 anti-war single Sky Pilot by Eggman Eric Burden and the Animals. In the extended interlude, after about a minute of war sounds slowly fade, a somber bagpipe dirge kicks in and then it goes back into the acid rock classic. The legend behind the bagpipes is that Burden snuck into a school where the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, a Highland Regiment pipe band, was practicing, and he secretly recorded them playing All the Blue Bonnets Are Over the Border, which was an important Scottish tune that dates back to the Jacobite Rebellion. Sky Pilot was released at the height of the Vietnam War, the UK government was none too pleased to hear their boys playing on this openly defiant protest song and wrote a very stern letter to Mr. Burden voicing their displeasure. It's a wonder their empire fell with those stern letters. 
The pipes show up later on the same record, on the final track, All Is One, as part of a sound collage. Bagpipes would go on to be added to the start or finish of several songs with no real effort to integrate them into the actual track. More like the artist is hoping to pull off some of the grandiosity of the instrument through osmosis. Prime examples of this very dust-sprinkling-of-napalm approach to bagpipe rock include Jeff Beck's Mountain Dew, where the bagpipes try to harken back to Scottish or Irish traditional music. The lands where Rod Stewart's hair flows like soft rock songbook albums. The dissonant bagpipes at the conclusion of Patti Smith's Easter work against the tolling of the church bells for a final coup de grace against the stiff religiosity that had been present throughout the entire album. Tom Waits, no stranger to musical instrument oddities, used a distant-sounded bagpipe to establish a desolate and empty mood before his broken ballad, Town With No Cheer. Ever quotable, Waits perfectly describes the uneasy relationship of rock and roll and bagpipes by saying, It's hard to play with a bagpipe player. It's like an exotic bird. I love the sound. It's like strangling a goose. As the 70s rolled along, the musical landscape started leveling out from the years of constant rock and roll revolution of the 60s, meaning artists took more time to look back and try to mesh in some more traditional conventions. On their 1970 debut, Osmium, Parliament was just a few years removed from their doo-wop origins and not yet the diaper-sporting, mothership-marauding Funkensteins they'd soon become. Still, like the early Funkadelic records, they were masterful in genre-jumping, as demonstrated in this decidedly unfunky country psych soul track called The Silent Boatman. The mournful bagpipe perfectly complements the lyrical reflection on the journey beyond the veil. Hopefully they will have Burger King French toast sticks there. Waiting for the silent boat man to ferry me across the unknown wall. 
The 70s definitely presented a moment where bagpipes were finally appreciated as a potential rock instrument, one where it acts as an integral player, not just a noisemaker. The most famous and possibly the best use of rock and blow was, of course, ACDC's Long Way to the Top, which sports an unforgettable bagpipe lead guitar call and response. The inclusion of the instrument is attributed to George Young, older brother of Angus and Malcolm. George was wont to hang out with the band, drinking free beers and enjoying the hedonistic lifestyle without the burden of performance, while helping with just a minimal amount of production duties. Think the rocker version of Brandwell Bronte. George had a pretty decent music career himself as part of the Easy Beats and the Vanda and Young songwriting team. While in the studio recording what would be the high-voltage album, George overheard Bon Scott, the Scottish-born, Australian-bred lead singer, talk about how he played in a pipe band when he was a kid. George drunkenly convinced the always-already-inebriated band that this new track was a hit, but it just needed some bagpipes to tie it all together. (laughs) Bon tried to explain that he only played drums in the band, but George wasn't interested in those sorts of limitations. Ultimately, the band ran out and bought Bon a set of pipes that was more expensive than several of their guitars combined. When they got back to the studio, it was clear Bon had no idea what he was doing. But they persisted. The band adjusted the key of the song to be flat to match the drone pipes. With a little bit of tape loops and studio magic, Bond's rudimentary playing was transformed into a towering inferno of squawk, and Longway would go on to be Bond's signature song until his timely death by misadventure in 1989. The powers that be even erected a statue of Scott triumphantly cradling a set of pipes in his hometown of Kiramur, Scotland. Legend has it that when you walk by the statue in the wee hours of morn, you can hear the inexpert wailing of distant pipes and the sound of a lone soul spewing chunks. Shady doppelganger who calls himself Paul McCartney also used the bagpipes to emphasize the ancient nostalgia he feels for a piece of land he bought just a couple years earlier. Using money from some old band he'd been in, McCartney bought, and then gentrified probably, a huge ranch in an area called Mull of Kintyre, and then went ahead and stole an accompanying Scottish melody from Old Lang Syne to write a song about how great and beautiful his property was. British folks ate it up, and the track remains the UK's top-selling non-charity single. Unless, of course, you count Paul's new young wife fund as a charity. Mold this over for yourself a bit. Wing it.
totally tubular prancing prog progenitor, Mike Oldfield made pretty egregious use of the Ilian pipes and Northumbrian small pipes many times throughout his career, often pairing it with other exotic instruments like African drums or Icelandic kazoos. That man loved his tubes. Here's part two Taurus from Oldfield's Ambadon, featuring the pipework of Patty Maloney, later of the Chieftains. Scottish hard rockers Nazareth needed something to steam up their live shows. So for their cowbell-drenched hit, Hair of the Dog, lead singer Dan McCaffert breaks out his old sets of pipes and plays them through a talk box. (laughs) What the hell? Who's messing with the son of a bitch now? Blow it, Frampton. It wasn't just the big dogs that were bellowing out the good stuff. The ever-unpredictable Roy Wood would regularly play bagpipes live and on records. Here's the strange moment in Are You Ready to Rock when bagpipes are called forth out of the unknown to invade an otherwise swinging 50s revival rave-up. Or for the gorgeous conclusion of pub brawler sensational Alex Harvey Band on their track Anthem, where fragile singing gives way to a hypnotic drum cycle before the bagpipes start courtesy of the London Scottish TA Regiment pipe. The results are epic and melancholy, like the perfect closing music for a dramatic implosion of a space mime. Proving that rockers don't get all the fun, it was none other than the countrypolitan crooner Glenn Campbell, who liked to occasionally whip out his rhinestone bagpipes. He's a passable player, too. Here's a guilty pleasure of bagpipe country tune called Bonaparte's Retreat. Makes you wonder why he and Merle Haggard never started a band. They could have called it Haggis. Part of that Baggers Field sound. <laughs> Here's a bit of him and the near unicorn of pure blinding light in human form, Dolly Parton, doing Amazing Grace. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can only hope the last thing I hear before getting lowered into the ground is Dolly singing, Wretch Like Me, to my smiling corpse. Talk about rigor mortis. The 80s brought forth a new subgenre of songs that had sections with synthesizers and guitar effects that sound like bagpipes, but actually aren't bagpipes at all. For example, the church's downer smash hit Under the Milky Way has a solo with an ebo on a Fender Jazzmaster guitar recorded on a synclaver, which sounds pretty darn close to the real thing. Or how about Big Country, running their axes through a pitch transposer pedal, even though as a Scottish band they probably could have thrown a stone and hit a piper. It's not that big of a country. Slade mimicked the sound using simultaneous guitar harmonics on Run Runaway. There's no amount of corn liquor that would make one think that that isn't clearly a cheesy, synthesized bagpipe on the intro to Steve Earle's outlaw ballad classic, Copperhead Road. Finally, the artist formerly known as Peter Gabriel also used synth pipes to chilling effect on his bizarro protest world beat dirge classic Biko, but graduated to the real thing years later on Come Talk to Me. And just for some one-upmanship, Phil Collins plays the bagpipes himself on a couple of songs on a 1993 album which no doubt sound like the gurgling death knell of a drowning man. There's no shortage of forgettable examples of stoic artists trying to add gravity to their work and flexing their muscles. U2, Depeche Mode, Van Morrison, Elvis Costello, and Kate Bush have all blown hard on the traditional Irish Ilian pipes. Well, Meatloaf, John Farnham, Jethro Tull, Moody Blues, Rod Stewart, Don Henley, and the USSR Collapsers, the Scorpions, have all used bagpipes, usually to some minor extent. Sting used Northumbrian small pipes on his hit Fields of Gold. Of course, he spent several hours filling his air sac before unleashing the first explosive note, creating his own tartan tantric subgenre. The 80s and its lust for overproduction and over-instrumentation was seemingly a great time 
for a piper to find a decent blowjob. Then things got interesting again. As usual, there was one heroic band smashing the doors of a convention and then putting it through a meat grinder. Yeah, guar. Their track, Horror of Yig, combined bagpipes, sound bites of Colonel Kurtz, chainsaw guitar, and philosophical barking of Odorous Arungus to frightening effect. It's basically a Lovecraftian wet dream. A Cthulhu, if you will. It now is coming. It now is here. It now makes it impossible to wear. the magnet from the past, and the vulture It comes and you die. The inclusion of Ilian Pipes on 90s Underground Rock's most revered album was probably the biggest reason for a bagpipe resurgence as an actual component in indie rock. Time-traveling sister-lover hobo Jeff Mangum was inspired to write a carnivalesque song after seeing an Anne Frank doppelganger at a penny arcade in California. Seriously. The resulting untitled track presents the climatic Conclusion of Neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea. Played by Michelle Anderson, the pipes are entrancing and a perfect instrumental companion to the surrealistic marching band fuzz folk record. Soon, bagpipes found homes on songs from a range of amazingly moody and experimental bands like Godspeed You Black Emperor and The Swans. Here's the intro to The Swans' 30-minute track, The Seer, which is a great song to put on a jukebox right before you leave the bar. Trust me. Bell and Sebastian throw some pipes at the end of their twee anthem, Sleep the Clock Around. The Rilo Kiley song, A Better Son Daughter, has some bagpipes backing Jenny Lewis's triumphant vocals in a song which I only assume was used for the trailer of some Sundance Film Fest selection that I didn't see.
Titus Andronicus cap off their Bruce Springsteen in the Civil War fanfic record, The Monitor, with a song called Battle of Hampton Roads that features rousing pipe and backbeat outro. Sonic Youth guitar slayer Lee Rinaldo has a long-running side project called Glacial with drummer Tony Buck and Highlands bagpiper David Watson that make beautifully chaotic melodiousness in constantly shifting landscapes. Definitely worth listening if you're into distorted bagpipe ambient music like we are. Weirdo. White Stripes used Scottish small pipes on a couple of tracks on the Icky Thump record, which add a ghostly folkiness to their sound. We couldn't confirm the rumor that Jack White filmed the bag solely by the power of his own ego. There's a dark side to the bagpipe revolution. When the world let its guard down and let new metal destroy our society, it was corn with bagpipes at the vanguard. It became soon clear that bagpipes were again veering toward annoying novelty, and the invention of YouTube meant all sorts of starry-eyed buskers were donning their leather kilts and hooking up pyrotechnics to their drone pipes, playing cover versions of everything from ABBA to Sabbath to Carly Rae Jepsen. No gatekeeper, the homespun bagpipe blowers marched through the internet like they were reverse pied pipers, repelling all decency and good taste. Occasionally, though, they would come up with pretty great names like Bad Haggis or these guys, <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Pipers. Though the bagpiper you want to remember is Honey Blow, that's B-L-O, who solely possesses the diminutive intersection in the Venn diagram of smooth jazz, bedroom funk, and bagpipe blues. His YouTube videos are as puzzling as they are brilliant. Here's his dance floor classic, Bagpipe Soul.
Now bagpipers mostly have been relegated to two very niche genres for regular use. Celtic hybrid music and European folk metal. Bands like Flogging Molly, Finn's Fury, Dropkick Murphys, and Black 87 all make regular use of the pipes to authenticate their connection to Irish sound. I suppose that's what you have to do when you lack a Shane McGowan. Or self-respect. Of course, alien pipes are scattered all over the Pogues masterpiece, Rum Sodomy and the Lash, in the same way that Shane's teeth are scattered all over Ireland. The most interesting bagpipe usage comes from a whole dark host of metal bands in Europe, especially Germany, that have welcomed the gangly instrument into their black-clad bosoms. Bands like Illuvity, Graveworm, Blind Guardian, Tanzwut, Schandmoll, Nightwish, Skyforger, best one, and Fawn appear to love bagpipes as much as they love hobbits and not showering. This is a rabbit hole I spent way too much time down for music that is pretty much the sound of a dad getting angry after dropping his uneaten turkey leg at a renaissance festival. But if you want to jump in, I recommend starting with the other old-school medieval metalheads, Corvus Corax, or Sudarka. If you hear bagpipes coming from the forest, run. From classical to jazz, rock to experimental, there will always be a place for bagpipers to break free of the traditional Baroque limitations. Bagpipers who dream not of kilts and funerals, but of wine, women, and cocaine poured liberally down their chanter. A rock and roll lifestyle worthy of a bagman with behemoth lungs. And so the quiet, soft tones of the bagpipe and its ilk continue to mournfully play, shattering the stillness of the night and angering countless next-door neighbors. An instrument born of war, death, ritual, and protest, more than love or beauty, is certainly not any easy sound to conjoin with modern music, but we truly salute those brave few that tried. There are still more genres and generations to conquer. The only thing we are certain of is that you don't need a weatherman to know which way the bagpipe blows. That line in there about the neighbors reminds me of a story that I read while I was researching Rufus Harley. During that six months of practice, uh-huh. his neighbors called the cops on him. <laughs> and the cops would come over and they would bang on his door and Rufus would very quickly hide the bagpipe somewhere. And he'd come and answer the door 
And they say, we got to call a complaint that someone down here was playing the bagpipes. And he would look at them and just stare at them, like, in <laughs> silence for a while. <laughs> and say, do I look like someone who would be playing the bagpipes? <laughs> and they would say, no, sir, you do not. <laughs> and they would leave. That's pretty good. When you were researching this, did you run across the uh, the multitude of bagpipe jokes? No. There's some classics, you know. What's the difference between a bagpipe and an onion? Nobody cries when you're cutting up a bagpipe. Oh, okay. I knew that one, but I knew it with um, hobo or baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. I was trying to think about the other one. They're really, they're horrible. They're like... How do you know when a bagpipe's out of tune? It's making noise? Yes, somebody's playing it. <laughs> I have heard that one before. And the other thing I saw that was kind of cool is they have like a MIDI bagpipe now, like a totally electronic aerophone bagpipe. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty cool looking. <laughs> it's sort of like a keytar that you blow on. <laughs> before I move on, I do want to acknowledge one uh, pretty great article that kind of... Um, was similar to what we were trying to do, and I think it talked about a lot of the same things. There's an article in The Atlantic called The Bagpipes Legacy of Noise by Sheila Leeming. It was a fun read, and it gave us some ideas. So I want to say thank you to that and acknowledge that. All right, you want to play some songs? Sure. I think it's about time. I'm going to go first with a song by Rufus Harley, and it is called Eight Miles High.
That was Eight Miles High, the bird song by Rufus Harley from his King Queens album that came out in 1970 on Atlantic. It is an incredibly interesting cover that you think, just looking at it, there's no way this would work. And I think the first time I even played it, I played it just sort of on a, as a lark, seeing this album come in. I didn't know anything about Rufus Harley. I put it on thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. Watch people fly out of the store. And it was really good. It's got psych uh, it's got bagpipes, it's got soul jazz, um, it's just got a lot of stuff going on in it. None of it should work, but it sounds amazing. It's a great cover of one of the greatest songs ever. Yeah, I would listen to a mixtape of just that, and then the Birds version, and then the Husker Du version, just looping. Or maybe even laid on top of each other, who knows. It's amazing. Yeah, I love that song. I'm not going to go into any more about Rufus Harley. We, we covered quite a bit on him. So that's what I have for my first track. Awesome. For my first track, I'm going to play uh, somebody that we mentioned in the Turntable Talk, Dorothy Ashby. And this is her song, Soul Vibrations.
All right, that was uh, Soul Vibrations by Dorothy Ashby. That's off her record, Afro Harping, that came out in 1968 on Cadet Records. And Afro Harping is just one of the coolest, grooviest records there is. It's just very much like Rufus Harley. It's just a great mixture of kind of funky, soulful sound, a lot of African percussion, and then just this instrument that's taken to a, a different level by the playing. Dorothy had been around the jazz uh, world for a while, and she'd been with the uh, producer Dorn uh, that we mentioned in Atlantic. But she eventually got with uh, a different producer named Richard Evans at Cadet Records, and he really kind of helped her break into that kind of Chicago underground sound that's a little bit funky, a little bit jazz, just that great sound. And it's just so infectious, and, and I love this this song. It's fairly popular. We might have probably heard it before, but I think for this show, a little less bagpipes and a little bit more uh, harp was due. So she's kind of a contemporary with Alice Coltrane. Her electric harp usually was backed with a little bit more steady, dancey grooves, where Alice Coltrane was a little bit more out there, experimental, freeform stuff. My second song is by a band called The Vulcans, and the song is called Dr. Spock. Thank you. 
That was Dr. Spock by the Vulcans, which is a like a, a Moog dub album. It's, I, don't, I don't know. It's crazy stuff. I don't remember where I heard this. I, I think I was just on the internet or and something played this, and they played a song called Star Trek by this band called the Vulcans. And being a huge fan, I was like, what in the world is this? So I look into it. And so more or less, it came out on Trojan in 1972. I have a reissue. But there's this kind of novelty dub reggae band that hooked up with this prog rocker guy named Ken Elliott. And Trojan was basically trying to cash in on the easy listening, switched on Bach stuff that was coming out in the early 70s. And so it was sort of a commercial grab, but it was just so much weirder because basically they took really awesome, great reggae band, and then they just had this guy add a bunch of weird, twisty ARP 2600 synthesizer lines all through it, and they made all the songs about Star Trek and Spock and B-movie stuff. It's a little cheesy. It's kind of funny. It's at times really great. I don't know. It's just one of those records that I'm just so happy got made. And it's weird that Trojan was putting stuff like that out, but I'm glad they did. I've got my, I got a reissue from 2019 from real gone music. And I would suggest you pick it up if you're into space reggae. All right. The last song that we are going to play tonight is also not going to have bagpipes. You're welcome. (laughs) This is the William Loveday Intention with Hollis Brown. Tell you that you ain't got no friend. 
That was the William Loveday Intention with Hollis Brown, the Bob Dylan song. And this was just released uh, by Hangman Records, and the album is called The New and Improved Bob Dylan. The version of Hollis Brown just sounds like a almost a birthday party version of it. It's very rare that I like a cover version of a Bob Dylan song more than I like the original It's All Over Now, Baby Blue by them would be one such occasion. And now I think Hollis Brown. I think I like it more than the original. Whoa, that's that's really big for you. It is. Yep. Doesn't happen often. William Loveday is actually Billy Childish. And Billy Childish is probably pretty well known to a lot of you. For me, he was most known, or I came about hearing him with the head coatees or the head coats or all the other takeoffs on that name during the 90s he's kind of daunting to jump into yeah he has over 100 releases i know he was in the milkshakes or he yep. when i say he was in it was like it was him you know you know but um like just great garage rock um but this is something different i haven't heard from him before and it's yeah it's it's fantastic it's like a new angry Dylan who's covering Dylan, but not in a annoying way. Really something you have to hear. All right. Well, I think we just need to finish up some trivia. So you want to play those songs for us again and I'll see what I can do. Yep. Here's the deal. I got seven clips 
and I would like for you to tell me the song title, the artist, and what the theme that ties these together is. Okay. All right. Here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. The big city went straight to my baby's head. She never listened to a word or what. Track four. Track five. you get from that one i have no clue what one is okay number one is checkmates limited with ain't got no checkmates limited with ain't got no yep not firing any synapses but it's fine the second one gosh it sounded like paul mccartney but i don't think it was george harrison oh gosh from a song called living in the material world and off of the same, the album of the same day. Okay. Okay. The third one, the song was Bright Lights, Big City. Uh, lots of people have done that song. I don't know. I couldn't p- p- pull the voice, so I'm not doing very good on this one. This is Dion with oh, okay. a song called New York City Song. Okay. Okay. So it's not Big Lights, Bright City or Bright Lights, it's not, Big City? Uh, Bright Lights, Big City. No. But he says, I think you can hear him saying those in the clip, saying the words. Okay. The fourth one, I think it's Yoko Ono. It is. Do you know the song? Mm, It's off Season of Glass. I don't know. I've I've heard that song a billion times, and it's driving me nuts. But I finally came up with Yoko Ono. The song is Toy Boat. Toy Boat. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fifth song was The Ramones. And it's, um, oh, it's something Havana. This ain't Havana. Or, this ain't Havana. Good yeah. job. The sixth track, I don't, I don't have. It's a band Star Sailor, and the song is called Some of Us. Hmm. Star Sailor. 
Should I know them or? Only because of the theme. Okay. Okay. No offense, Star Sailor. And the last song is definitely Leonard Cohen with Iodine. Correct. So you've got Checkmates Limited with Ain't Got No, George Harrison, Living in the Material World, Dion, New York City Song, Yoko Ono, Toy Boat, Ramones, This Ain't Havana, Star Sailor, Some of Us, and Leonard Cohen, Iodine. What is the theme? Okay. Well, based off the Ramones song, which I think is off end of the century, and uh, the Leonard Cohen song, which is definitely off Death of a Ladies Man, I am going to guess that these are Phil Spector-produced songs. And the fact that he, you know, he died recently. That's it. Yep. Whew. All right. Hey, Joe. Yes, Ryan. Do you know what uh, microphone that we recommend you use when you're recording your bagpipes at home? I have an idea of what that is. Why don't you tell us some more about this? We fully recommend. We've never done that, but I'm 95% sure you'll get the best sound with an AKG Lyra podcast mic, which I assume works for bagpipes too. I don't know. It works for other instruments. Bagpipes seems like they'd be fit right in. But maybe you don't want to do a bagpipes. Maybe you just want to do a podcast about bagpipes like us. Well, buckle up and grab yourself an AKG Lyra, plug in and start talking about bagpipes, and you'll be right there. You don't have to worry about your sound because the AKG will, will take care of that. You just need to worry about finding a bunch of research about bagpipes. Anyways, the AKG Lyra has, is a partnership with our podcast network, Pantheon, and they've allowed us to use their product, which is great, and it's easy, and it's simple, and it sounds wonderful. So uh, if you're interested in podcasting, or it does record instruments, grab yourself an AKG podcaster kit that comes with a Lyra and some nice headphones, and uh, get going. It's really not that hard to make a podcast. We can do it. If we can do it, you can. Anyways, we want to say thanks to AKG. Uh, it's awesome that they share their products with us. It's really good. And also want to acknowledge uh, Pantheon Podcast. Fantastic podcast network. Great people. Lots of amazing shows, and they're adding new shows all the time. But if you're interested in music history, most shows aren't about bagpipes. Um, so if you're one of the people who are just listening for the bagpipe info, there's probably some bagpipe stuff out there, but probably not a lot. But other stuff. Definitely check out Pantheon. We appreciate their support, and they got ama- amazing shows. We got some social media to plug. We do, yeah. Please come find us, follow us, talk to us. We're on Instagram and on Twitter, and our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We're on Facebook. We have a page there that is very easily found, and you can email us at. Highway Hi Fi Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, reach out. We love we love to hear from you. Let us know which bagpipe rock songs we missed. Please, we want to know we want to hear more about bagpipes at this point. You know what? Keep it to yourself, kids. Keep it to yourself. I don't need any more bagpipes. <laughs> you know, there's some episodes where my family's just so excited when we're moving on. Like, because I've just spent so much time listening to bagpipes. <laughs> it's like a Scottish war field over here. 
Anyways, well, we want to say thanks again for everybody for listening. Uh, we appreciate you. Um, if you have a little extra dough, please go support an artist, buy their record, see if you can do one of those virtual shows that a lot of them be doing. Just artists are hurting in this pandemic and support somebody, support a local record store. Do what you can if, you, if you're able. Uh, we appreciate everybody who's listened, and we will uh, see you next time. I don't know what kind of food would have ovaries. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.